with you today, and uh, we so enjoyed worshiping the Lord uh, with you last week, and we're looking uh, forward to the, the time we'll spend together here. Uh, when Pastor Robert returns, you'll be back in John chapter 15, and I last week brought a complimentary message to that with Psalm chapter 1, where we looked at what it looked like to be planted, transplanted by the, the living waters so that we can produce fruit. And today we're returning to John's writings, but to the epistle, 1 John chapter 1, where John emphasizes the importance of having fellowship with Christ. And again, a complementary text to the one uh, that uh, Pastor Robert will uh, reintroduce next week when he returns. So we're going to be looking at First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, and thinking about what it means to be in context of abiding in Christ, what it means to have fellowship with Him. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. My father was saved rather dramatically in Montana along the High Line, right at the Canadian border. And within a week of his conversion, surrendered to preach, and with a, another week, preached his first sermon, and realized that a call to preach was a call to prepare for ministry. So he sold his business and uh, moved us all to Texas. Now, he started out Assembly of God, but when he went to uh, the, the school uh, to study, to be an Assembly of God pastor, one of the textbooks was the Bible. And as he read it, uh, he found some variances from the doctrine of the, uh, of the Assembly of God Church that he had grown up in and uh, became Baptist. And so my earliest memories uh, from being two, three, four is being in the Southern Baptist Church. Now, I'll give you that background just to say um, that my, my experience with our culture it's very important for us to be honorable people. It's very important for us to treat one another with dignity and to conduct our ways so that we have a standing within our congregations. Now that's, that's the positive end of that culture that's very much part of our churches. And I see you nodding your head, so though I don't know your church well, obviously, it seems like that's a part of your culture too. The dark side of that is that it becomes easy, almost default, for us to act in an honorable way even when deep down inside of our heart, there's darkness there. It's easy in an honored culture to so want to not experience shame that we don't face the reality of our own depravity and our own sinfulness. That's my experience. It's been my experience that during seasons of sinfulness in my own life that it was important 
fact, there is a trend in evangelical churches, we can go broader than Baptist churches and evangelical churches, uh, to where we tend not to even talk about sin that much. To where church needs to be the place where all the happy, shiny people come. You know, the kind of folks that have their act together. And where all of our songs tend to be upbeat and joyful and uh, don't worry, be happy kind of is the, the underlying theme there. And if you walk into the place with the problems, with deep needs, you kind of check it at the door. Because it's almost like lamenting over sin, confession of sin, sorrow over sin. It's just... If it has a place in evangelical worship today, it's relegated to the back rooms. It's not in the open. And yet the text we're looking at today shows us the need, the necessity for every one of us to come face to face with the darkness that is If we're going to have fellowship with Christ, we need to stop being concerned so much with what other people think and become concerned <coughs> with what God thinks of us. Shall we stand for the reading of this word? <coughs> what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've observed and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you that eternal life was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. John is an eyewitness. He heard Jesus say these things. He walked with him. He touched him. He handled the word of life. And here's the message that Jesus gave him in person that he wrote down for the original readers and is for us today. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in Him. We say we have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in darkness. We are lying and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. We say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's read it again. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word 
is not in us. May we with honesty of heart and sincerity of our faith not only hear the word of God, but receive it in the moments to come. You may be seated. He begins the epistle, John does, by stating his credentials to come right up front and get in our grill. And that's exactly what he does here. Now, I don't know if it's an economy of words, I don't know why, but it gets right to the point. In the beginning, he talks about that he knew Jesus. He knew him in the flesh. Now, this is written in the context of people already denying that God had become man and that they denied his divinity, they denied his humanity, they couldn't quite grasp how he could be both. And so in the context of that, John is stepping up as an eyewitness. Now as a mature man, and he clearly states, yeah, he's, he's God, he's also man. I was with him. He provides that eyewitness testimony that he had touched him, that he had handed him. John had seen Jesus's divinity on display and also seeing his humanity on display. He saw him weep at Lazarus's tomb. He's the one that told us about it. He saw Jesus hungry. He saw Jesus hurting. You see, whenever we excuse our sin by saying, I'm only human, we err theologically because Jesus was fully human and yet he did not sin. Sin does not emit from our humanity, it emits from our depravity. And John makes it clear that he knew Jesus. And then he says he's got a word for us from Jesus. And the construction here that John uses is he has three if we say statements. Three times in this selection, this pericope, he says, if we say this, then. And that will be the structure of our message today. We'll look at those three statements. He begins by saying, if we say we have fellowship with him. We see that in verse 5. Okay. If, in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. Now, I was not raised to call a man a liar even when he was. That's just something you didn't call somebody. And I think it goes back to that honor culture, that you just don't shame somebody publicly. You can call them this or you can call them that, but you don't call a man a liar. And where I grew up, if you did, you better be prepared to step outside, even if the man was lying. Well, apparently, John didn't grow up in West Texas. Because he says to us, you have fellowship with him? Are you walking in darkness? 
He says, if you're walking in darkness and you say that you have fellowship with him, you're a liar. You are not practicing the truth. Darkness, what is it? Well, the atheist Robert Ingersoll wrote that darkness is the absence of light. Hmm. Gosh, I almost want to agree with that, even though the guy was a rascal. Darkness is the absence of light. Well, scripturally, it's not true. Darkness is not simply the absence of light because God not only created light, he also created darkness. In Isaiah 55, 7, it says, I form light and create darkness. You see, we think about darkness as outside of God's jurisdiction, but that is not true. There are times that God uses darkness for his good purposes. As you read through the Bible, you find times that God uses evil kings for his purposes. For God even takes something that is evil and he turns it into good. I think probably the most familiar passage of Scripture that helps us understand that is the words of Joseph when he's talking to his brothers. He said, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. Well, selling him into slavery wasn't good. That was evil. Taunting him, ostracizing him, making him feel like he didn't belong and he was a small child, that was evil. That wasn't good. And yet God is able to take dark things and use them for his purposes. And so don't take a simple approach to this text and say, well, if I'm walking in darkness, that means I'm walking in things outside of God's purview. That's not the case. God is able even to use evil for his good purposes, display number one, Golgotha. That was evil, that was wicked, that was despicable, and yet, by the shedding of blood, there comes remission of sin. So, what does it mean then to walk in the light? Especially in view of the fact that darkness is not the absence of God's presence. There's likely somebody in this room right now that needs to hear this. If you're walking in darkness, He is still there. There is no place you can go that God isn't. In fact, the psalmist says, even if I descend into Sheol, thou art there. It's very common practice in churches to say that hell is the absence from the presence of God. That is not true. Hell is the absence from the favor of God. But his presence is there in that he created it, and that his judgment and his wrath is being carried out. His presence is still there. 
So if you are in darkness, that does not mean you are not in the presence of God. He is still there. I mentioned the last week the psalmist's words that even in the valley of the shadow that he is there. It's assumed that we will go through difficult, tough times. But when we do that, still in the presence of God. I know in the lowest parts of my life, details are unimportant. But in the most difficult times of my life, when I couldn't sleep and I stared at this, the moonlight being sliced by the ceiling fan, wondering if I would live, wondering who would care for my children if I didn't, wondering about the welfare of my wife, the darkness and the cruelty of those circumstances I cried out to God where are you? I did not in that moment realize that I was in the palm of his hand It wasn't a warm and fuzzy place. It was a dark and dank place. It was a despicable place. It was the worst place I've ever been, and the worst that was in me came out. I walked up to the very edge of unbelief. And teetered on the edge ready to abandon the faith of my family, ready to abandon the very gospel that I preached. But he sustained. It was a dark moment. It was a difficult time. I didn't feel the hand of God. I didn't know he was there. Oh my goodness, in the rearview mirror I do. But not in the moment. Am I preaching to myself when you've been there? Now, this particular text isn't talking about the dark moments of circumstances. It's talking about something different. It's talking about the despicable darkness of an open rebellion against God to where we choose our signature sin over fellowship with God. Sin, preacher, what are you talking about? Well, in the old King James language, the version that I memorized as a child, it is the sin that does so easily beset you. It's your go-to sin. It's when times are tough and the pressure is on 
and you're no longer consciously in control of your life, and neither is the Spirit of God. It is the quicksand into which you sink. You see, the problem with walking in the light is the darkness vanishes and it exposes the sin. In the darkness, we all look pretty good. No blemishes, no need for makeup, no need to. But in the light, Light. Friends, do we even have a clue what light is? I mean, we know about fluorescent lights. We know about sunlight. But do we know about the brilliance of the light of being in the very physical presence of the Son of God? The one who created the Son, right? Where everything is exposed. You see, there's something in our culture that wants to avoid the lie because we want to appear honorable. And yet it's only in the lie that we can have fellowship with him. It's not that he's not in the darkness. You'll never be alone. But there's no fellowship with Christ in the darkness. The dark moments of circumstances, yes. The darkness of our signature sin, where it's no longer that pet sin that we do when we do, our go-to thing, but it's no longer that we're doing the sin, but that sin is doing us. It's defying us. It's controlling us. No fellowship there. And John says, if you say you have fellowship with him there, you're a liar. And then he really intensifies. I mean, this feels perhaps it, 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 it's like uh, you remember when we had the earthquake and then they thought we would have aftershocks and we found out that the recent earthquake was a foreshock. That's the way this is. It's building and it's intensifying. He says if you're, if you're walking in darkness you can't have fellowship with him. And then in verse 8, in the next if we have, uh, if we say statements, he says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, unless we're walking in the light where he is in the light, implying sinlessness, we can't have fellowship with him. But now in this verse says, if you say you don't have sin, you're lying. 
Only the self-deceived would claim to be without sin. Paul writes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. David wrote, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Now you could blame it all on Adam if you want to. There are some religions that have based that as a foundational doctrine. Uh, the truth is, I've sinned on my own right. How about you? Now, I do take after my daddy, Adam. I came by some of it honestly. But not only have I done it, but I've done it as a practice. It's an interesting word, isn't it? As a practice. I'm practicing sin. Like I haven't gotten it right yet. You know? <laughs> Practicing sin. Spirit-directed people, however, who understand their sinful state can still walk in the light, can still have fellowship by confessing. It's hard to even read 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 without choking up a little bit. We confess our sin. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin. cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess. Interesting word, confess. When I hear the word, I think about its popular use. Like watching a crime drama on TV and a guilty person confesses or there's a coerced confession. even thinking about walking into a dark closet. In popular culture, confession is used what an adherent of religion does when speaking to a priest. The word simply means to say the same thing. So when we confess our sins, what we do is we say the same thing about our sins that Jesus says. And I don't think Jesus uses euphemisms like bad habits. Right? I mean, the one that spread out his arms and had himself nailed to the cross because of our sin. Doesn't, uh, doesn't take it lightly. People may experience the pleasure of sin, but Jesus did not. He experienced the wrath of God because of his sin, a wrath he did not deserve. He ex experienced excruciating pain because of our sin, pain he did not deserve. 
think a lot about his words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I suppose, you know, the scholars that love to write about this and debate about this and speak about this and the community where I serve, whenever we talk about this, it's usually what you're referring back to a psalm, when you ask, you know, it's those kinds of questions. And whatever you want to do with that, do with that fine. But there's an emotive element that in that moment he was no longer experiencing the pleasure of God, but experiencing the full life of God. And remember that he himself being God, the first time He wasn't experiencing his own nature, and yet in the moment of that, he was no less God. As he paid the penalty for our sin, there he was, and he spoke the word, and the world came into being. So when we get it right, when we confess, He's faithful and just. Now those two words go with the character of Jesus. To forgive. And to cleanse. That's how we can walk in the light. Not because of our sinlessness, but because of His. Not because of our righteousness, but because of His. And all He asks of us is the very thing that goes against our culture. <coughs> Which is to be honest about who we are and what we've done. Here's the problem. We sin in retail and we confess in wholesale. <laughs> we really think that the close of a prayer before we go to sleep at night or before we toss and turn racked with a guilty conscience or painful muscles or whatever it is that keeps us up at night. We say, forgive me of my sins, amen. And we think that does. Oh my goodness. There's a song we used to sing when I was a boy. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. I've often thought that the song could be improved by adding the verse, count your sins. Name them one by one. Count your sins. And see what your rebellion is. See, in the context of a Christian culture that becomes more important to project that we're honorable, it's easy for us not to deal with our depravity. 
It's not just a matter of my sins are forgiven. Move on, preacher. Move on. Get off of this. It's a matter of you cannot abide in Christ and you cannot walk in fellowship with Him if you're in open rebellion. And the only way to address that issue is through confession. So we admit we've sinned and we find fellowship and freedom in that admission. But there's one more if we say statements that John has for us in verse 10. You know, verse 9 is so neon. You know, it's bold print. It pops off the page that it's easy for us to forget it's attached to verse 10. We say we don't have any sin. Am I reading that right? We make him alive and his word is not in. It's not that these are merely self-deceived. It's that they are failing to trust in God and His Word. Because against the light of the Word of God, my sinfulness is exposed. And when the Word of God is on the shelf, I can look pretty good. But when it's in my heart, now the light is no longer exterior, but it's interior. And it's exposing, the Word of God is exposing even my thoughts. And if we can be exposed to the Word of God and walk away, say, hey, I got He's alive. And his word is not in us. Throughout the Bible, God is depicted as a forgiving God. I've mentioned his wrath. Not mentioned enough, I think, today. I've mentioned his wrath. But if you're going to put that up on the bookshelf as one bookend of understanding who God is, you have to also put up his grace his foreknowledge, his election. You have to put up on the other side of that that our God is a forgiving God. He's the one that blots out transgressions in Isaiah. He's the one that wipes out sins in Acts. He's the one that redeems us through his blood in Ephesians. He's the one that promises to forget our sins in Hebrews. He's the one that says our sins are separated as far as the east is from the west in Psalms. And in Micah, he's the one that pardons our sins. Name the book. You can't thumb through the Bible without knowing that God's wrath is not the final answer 
Because he didn't just pour out his wrath on Jesus at the cross. But Jesus defeated sin, death, and the grave. And he rose from the pit with victory. The grave could not keep him. And because of that, there's forgiveness. Forgiveness to all the people that choose not to be self-deluded and deceptive to others who come to the cross for forgiveness. There's an Australian man that was born in 1936, James Harrison is his name, and because of his blood, he saved two million babies' lives. There's a rare disease, a, a form of anemia that's called rhesus disease, where the blood of the child and the mother are incompatible. And when the child is born, it uh, is likely to die because of that incompatibility. But because of his blood, which he's donated over a thousand times, they're able to extract from it what's needed to be able to save the lives of all of these babies. Two million. That's a lot. But all he's really done, not to minimize it, is postpone death. Because according to Scripture, it's appointed unto everyone who wants to die. It is a judgment. There is a blood, though, that has been given that does more than postpone death. There is a blood that was sacrificed, that empowers the giver of that blood, to not just extend life, but to transform it. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope in peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. <coughs> Now by this I'll overcome nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this I'll reach my home nothing but the blood of Jesus. Glory, glory, this I sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. All my praise for this I bring nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the refrain Robert Lowry's hymn that was based upon 1 John 1 7 is this. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friend, 
only people that have fellowship with you. For those that confess their sins and receive his cleansing. As I go from one church to another, folks are always so kind as they introduce me. They always leave out my most important qualification to preach. And that is, I'm an accomplished sinner, deeply in need of God's grace today. It used to be that pastors walk to the pulpit from the preacher's throne. Remember those? Today we come out of the audience to preach. I like the imagery of that a lot better. Don't put me on some throne that's elevated. Let me walk out of the audience because I'm as much in need of the grace of God to, that I preach today as you are. You relate to that? Do you agree that you need God's grace as much as I do? Yes. It's only going to happen, folks. We'll only experience that ongoing fellowship. And we'll say the same thing about our sins, he said. Let's pray. I was talking a minute ago about signature sin. Something popped into your head for every one of us. Confess it right now. Yes, God. You're right. That's sin. I'm going to ask you not to pray a prayer demanding that God bless your sinfulness. I'm asking you to confess your sin. Acknowledge its sin. Ask Him to cleanse you today. So that you may experience